Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Data Center Frontier Show, where we tell the story of the data center industry one podcast at a time. I'm Rich Miller, the host of uh, the DCF Show and editor of Data Center Frontier. And today I'm pleased to welcome Bill Clayman as our guest on the DCF Show. Uh, Bill, welcome. I, I'm so excited to be here. I actually have to temper my caffeine level, which is why I've switched to water, Rich Miller, and everybody listening. Um, thank you so far, so much for having me. Uh, I'm I'm so excited over the topics that we're going to be discussing. And you know what? It's just it's just a beautiful sunny day outside. And I'm happy to be here, Rich. Thanks. Thank you. In addition to uh, writing for Data Center Frontier and doing fine work for us, you uh, I write for a number of other publications across the industry. Uh, you're very uh, involved in the Infrastructure Masons and a number of their initiatives. And you're also now uh, in, involved with the Neuro, which we'll talk a little bit about, which is uh, a play in the AI infrastructure area. So lots to talk about. I wanted to, to start today. Uh, data Center uh, World is coming up in a, just a bit. And you are one of the keynote speakers. You help put the uh, agenda together. And I know that uh, prior to the show, you do some research through uh, through AFCOM to kind of get a sense of what uh, people in the data center industry are thinking about, what are the front of mind issues. So uh, maybe we could start with uh, what you're hearing from the, the industry about uh, what, the, what the big concerns are this year. I handpicked uh, a few findings just for you, Rich Miller, and your audience, our audience, um, to talk about uh, some of the really crazy stuff that we, we we learned about there. So one of the questions that we asked at the report, I'm going to go maybe through like two or three stats and sure, and, and ask me some fun questions here. Um, we asked the question around power and rack density. Now, interestingly enough, this year we had an average of about 8.5 kilowatts per rack. I was really curious. So I'm like, hang on a second. I'm actually going to look at the first ever report that we did, and that was right around 6.1, 6.2 kilowatts of rack. So we're talking about between now and then about a 30% increase, which I'm mm -hmm. not surprised. We're being tasked with doing more with less, uh, try to fit more stuff in there. But in the sense of power density, we also wanted to ask about cooling. Here is the crazy qu question we asked. We asked, what is the current state of cooling and uh, is your cooling environment meeting your needs? I was surprised about the results. 46% came back and said that all of our cooling solutions met our requirements. Whoa, 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 whoa. So the majority is not having their cooling requirements met? Yeah, that rich and everybody, that, that's actually what we learned. 35% uh, said we are persistently running out of cooling capacity and need to adjust. 18% mm -hmm. said we're actively looking for new systems to meet scalability demands. It's this requirement of our industry. We have a limited amount of space. We can't really build out that much very effectively. So we need to be able to do much more with less. So we've seen people do more with cooling, liquid cooling architecture, things like emerging, uh, direct touch, uh, directed ship are all very, very popular solutions. Another thing sort of across this slide that we asked about was renewable energy. And sure, solar wind, uh, solar wind, hydro, we're at the top. 10% of our respondents came back with nuclear. Mm-hmm. Rich Miller, I think that's going to be fascinating. Within the next five to 10 years, we're going to be seeing things like SMRs and nuclear regulatory commissions uh, are now uh, getting their boom rubber stamp of approval on uh, on these kinds of facilities being built. And you know what's really fascinating? And, and not to make this correlation, we're talking about nuclear technology. Today's April 26th, the 37th anniversary of Chernobyl. 
as someone who was there and lived through it, I'm still a big fan of nuclear energy. We're not building graphite uh, reactors. They're all water-based solutions, which are inherently safe. So I think that this is a very, very interesting trend that we're going to be seeing uh, in this industry as far as nuclear power is a real viable option to create green renewable energy sources. I want to talk about, uh, there's obviously some really fun statistics and reports around things like uh, um, uh, workload management, uh, balancing between cloud and cloud repatriation and so on. And on that note, we actually got a really interesting stat. Uh, This whole cloud balance conversation has been fascinating. 83% came back and said they are seeing workloads being repatriated from the cloud back to on-premise. Now, I don't want Rich Miller, you, or anyone in your audience going on Twitter right now or LinkedIn and saying, Bill Clayman saying that the cloud is going away. Stop it. That's not what I'm saying. Don't tweet that out. I'm saying, I'm saying that there's a balance. There's a balance and a better understanding of what needs to be living in the cloud and public cloud uh, with it on-premise solutions. And this certainly falls into the conversation of things like generative AI, chat GPT, and so on. But other things that we notice being repatriated, ERP systems, supply chain management, financial management, custom applications like DevOps, uh, processes, services, and even things like Kubernetes clusters are being moved on-prem. I think, I personally think that's really special. Um, I think that's solid. Uh, and again, it shows a maturity in the market. One, no, two more stats, and then I promise I'll be quiet, and then we can go into the <laughs> I promise. I'm just excited these just came out, and I get a chance to talk about them and not like oh, we'll talk about them. I got I got uh, questions and thoughts on all of these, but but go ahead, do continue. See you writing this stuff down, Rich. All right, <laughs> all right, all right. So we asked about supply chain, um, and obviously this was this was kind of a big one. Uh, we we continue to ask uh, this year. Oh my God, ninety four percent experienced challenges with supply chains. Basically, almost everybody. Now there was a secondary statistic that I want everyone to be aware of that was uh, very prominent, a little scary, but more so prominent. We asked the question of, did you experience an outage caused by a supply chain issue? Help everybody sitting down. 44% came back and said, yes, we experienced some type of an outage caused by supply chain issue. That's not the crazy stat. Last year, that number was 25%. It's concerning. It's growing, right? Uh, Some of the things that obviously are taking up the biggest lead time, according to the report, IT equipment, power systems, cabinets, cooling systems. Uh, I recently had a conversation with somebody who was like, Bill Clayman, I've got good news. The supply chain is getting better. I'm like, all right, go on. Well, instead of waiting 60 weeks for your air handler and generator, now it's only 52. I'm like, you are a glass half full kind of person. I like that. That's still a really long time to have to wait for something that used to take only maybe two, three, four weeks to get into a facility. So something that we absolutely need to be concerned about last thing that I want to talk about, and this was a, a kind of an important conversation that we had. Um, were around primary security and physical infrastructure threats. For the first time ever in our report, we saw insider human threats and outside human threats breach the top five. Okay, what does that mean? That means somebody maliciously or accidentally doing something that causes an incident inside of a facility or same thing outside the facility. Now, we as an industry, we don't talk about this that much because it is scary, right? It, 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 is, it is a little bit of a concern. You better believe when there are incidents, not all of them are reported out. They're kept private. But this is a very clear indication that folks are worried. Um, I spoke with a federal agent. This was actually in an article I wrote recently, and, and they were very clear about it. Bill, whenever there's a concentration of critical infrastructure, 
it's a target, man. You, it's, and federal regulators are starting to take notice on this, whether it's the Federal Emergency Regulatory Commission um, or anyone else who's trying to make sure we understand critical infrastructure and people taking pot shots at substations. Um, what does that mean for our our industry and our world? Ransomware was at the top of the list. Same right. thing happened since we've asked this question. Another one breaking the top five for the first time, DDoS. And Rich, we just recently did a really great report on this with A10, where I did yes. a lot of extra research. Um, and please understand, nearly four terabits per second. Those are the kinds of volumetric application network layer attacks we're starting to see. Four terabits per second. Just a few years ago, we saw the Mariah botnet scaring everyone at 623 gigabits per second, which sounds frightening. But now we're approaching four terabits. This is a clear concern for our infrastructure. This is a clear concern for digital infrastructure industry. Um, if you're a co-location provider and you get hit with a four terabit per second attack, you're, you're, you're going to have something happen. So you need to have really good methods of protecting, creating clear methods and channels of communication should something like that happen. Um, this is my handpicked uh, little bit of, of, uh, of a recap of what we learned about. The report went live an hour ago, literally. Um, so I'm sure, Rich Miller, you're going to share my content information. If somebody wants to see their report, I will share it out. But a lot of crazy, really fun and interesting things. And we're going to be talking about this at Data Center World coming up here in May. Well, this is a pretty healthy list of, of interesting topics. Uh, and uh, all, just about all more stuff that, as you've noted, we've written about at uh, Data Center Frontier. And, uh, and some of these have been ongoing uh, uh, focal points for our coverage over the years. And that's certainly true of cooling and density. For many years, we were writing about mostly vendors who were talking about, you know, the need for liquid cooling solutions that, uh, you know, high density was coming any day now. And yet there were the numbers really remained pretty steady, not getting too much above the, the six kilowatts per rack that you mentioned in your the first uh, AFCOM uh, uh, report that you did seven years ago. But the uptick that you're talking about is one that we've seen a number of different surveys and reports reference. And even some folks who've been skeptical about uh, rising density are starting to predict a lot of change very soon. And, you know, the real uh, thing that's driving all of this is new processors that are coming onto the market that have much larger uh, power draws. Uh, and then that translates into more heat that uh, has to be uh, has to be managed, uh, and that uh, this is not just uh, the uh, NVIDIA GPUs that have be become such workhorses in some of the AI and high performance computing. Uh, we're seeing uh, new chips from a number of vendors and a number of startups. Uh, we, you know, David Chernikov, our, our new senior editor at uh, DCF, has been writing about some of the startups that are putting new gear into the market, some of which is uh, uh, being adopted. So a number of folks are, are thinking about ways to manage this with air cooling, but there are, is a lot of momentum for liquid cooling, at least in people doing proof of concepts and doing small installations. And it seems to me, and tell me what, what your impression is, that a lot of folks are trying to you know, put a, uh, not just a toe, but maybe a foot in the water to you know take the temperature, understand the technology, uh, and be ready to scale. If uh, uh, just as an example, if AI hits a, a, a powerful adoption curve, 
I, I, did you did you say that on purpose? Put your foot in the water. Was that a, like a cooling pun? You did that on purpose. Okay, that's I'm 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 a trickster. <laughs> um, so uh, dipping dipping your toes into dielectric fluid, which I probably don't recommend you do that, Mr. Yeah, that's great. No. Um, that being said, uh, I think listen, liquid cooling has been around for a long time. Back in like the 1970s, when IBM used it for their mainframe computers. Um, now what we are seeing is more of a mainstream adoption and more of a mainstream adoption into more hybrid environments, right? I think we're starting to reach a point of a little bit more understanding of what, um, of what physical infrastructure looks like and how it can work with an air cooled and a liquid, liquid cooled ecosystem sort of running under one environment. The other, the other big element that we're seeing here as well is that there are some really cool tank tub, whatever, so pods that you want to call them, that you can start to take like off the shelf Dell pizza box computers, take out the fan and boom, just dump them into that, you know, dielectric 3M Nobec uh, um, fluid. And you're capable of obviously dissipating heat at way greater levels than you can versus, uh, versus air cooled. I mean, you're starting to really approach densities. I mean, this is ridiculous, right? Yep. 100. 150, 250 kilowatts per pod, right? And these are 42U pods, right? They go in, they can go in a traditional data center. It's become much more, it's easier to adopt this stuff. And back to your original question. Oh my gosh, everybody. I know we're going to talk about AI. I know we're going to talk about ChatGPT, but everyone listening, this is 1999, okay? The internet is right around the corner. It is, it is 2006 and the iPhone comes out next year. Rich Miller and everybody listening, we've been doing search and interaction with data the same way for the past 20 years. Rich Miller enters in a search query and then ask Jeeves, Yahoo, Google, whoever returns a pretty blue link. Same thing, rinse and repeat for the past 20 years. The change that we're experiencing now with these AI high density, high compute uh, systems is really shifting the way we interact with data. Now you mentioned an AI adoption curve. There's going to be no curve. It's a straight freaking line upwards. If Elon Musk's rocket actually worked, that's what the trajectory <laughs> would have looked like without exploding midair. Um, and I'm re I'm really not kidding. So you're talking about this liquid cooling adoption. I know we're ebbing and flowing a little bit. Um, this is something that organizations are going to need to take a look at. You have to take a look at this stuff. And we'll talk about this, but a single Google search can power a 100-watt light bulb for 11 seconds. This is from Google, consuming about 0.3 kilowatt hours of energy per search. A single ChatGPT instance consumes 50 to 100 times more power than that, upwards of 3 to 4 kilowatt hours uh, per instance. Now, that's that's a lot of light bulbs. Now, that also tells us that you need to have really a lot of energy, a lot more density, a lot more effective ways to dissipate heat. And believe it or not, liquid cooling is an amazing method to do some of these technologies. So I, I feel like instead of dipping a toe in, more organizations are putting a foot in the water, so to say, um, and trying this stuff out. But I think the good news is that adopting and working with liquid cooling technology, immersion cooling especially, is so much easier today than it was in the past. You have these beautiful, fully encompassed systems, many of them entirely robotic, um, really isolated. There's no fear around, you know, water damage, uh, um, wicking, uh, you know, leaks, fire. All, there's all of this stuff has been sort of thought through and developed. So I feel like we're going to see a little bit more adoption in that space. 
And and I think the other thing is that there's folks have been yearning for standards on uh, different kinds of liquid cooling and immersion. I know Intel and both the Open Compute Project are both working on this, uh, particularly with with coolant fluid. I mean, because that's uh, uh, that's one of the things that when it comes to warranties and things like that, uh, this all gets into the the weeds a bit. But I I agree. I think and I think. It really looks like the, as with so many things in uh, our industry, the hyperscalers are going to do some adoption here that may set some standards that that will help others to say, "Hey, look that uh, that Microsoft did that and uh, nothing uh, exploded or had a, uh, a rapid unexpected disassembly or whatever." You rapid disassembly. Yeah. So. Um, and the the other thing you you mentioned uh, that we've been writing a lot about and getting a lot of attention is nuclear and nuclear power. Everybody's I think there's uh, a lot of discussion about this for a number of reasons, and I can sort of offer my own take on this. Uh, a small group of folks who deal with very large compute requirements have been thinking about the possibility of of nuclear for a while. And the, particularly the small modular reactors that uh, that you talked about. One of the challenges is how we get from here to where we need to be on climate change and carbon mitigation goals. Even though renewable energy has come a long way, it's available in bulk. I think there's uh, log jams now on trying to get some of the uh, new generation onto the grid due to backlogs and interconnection. We'll, we can talk more about the grid in a second because that certainly is a in the supply chain piece of this. Um, but I think a lot of folks in the data center industry see uh, nuclear as a way that very large uh, data center campuses can have some sort of energy independence and have you know, carbon-free power. Now, whether or not it's green, you'll get some discussion about that. Uh, the Greenpeace folks uh, would would certainly probably say no, and and so do some others. But at the same time, you know, while there is sort of a religious dispute behind all of this, uh, the practical arguments for nuclear, I think, uh, are making people think a lot more about it. And we're starting to see some projects announced that are saying, hey, on the horizon, we want to include SMRs in in our energy plan. Absolutely. And there's a little bit of disjointed government support. And I say disjointed because, you know, one part of the government could support you and the other part of the government is like, no, you need permits. So the last year at Data Center World, we had the Department of Energy come in and actually talk about how they have this giant multi-hundred million dollar grant program for organizations that want to undertake SMRs. But also last year, there wasn't really any organization that had the grant, like the sort of the stamp of approval, um, kind of like New Scale got recently, right? Right. I, you know, in, in terms of nuclear, I'm, I'm, I should, I should really make sure I make this very clear. I'm not, I'm not a nuclear scientist. I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't work with these technologies. My, my experience with nuclear radiator, you know, uh, uh, nuclear, you know, facilities is, is, is mixed, right? It's a mixed bag. Um, yep. but I still come out. Remember that involved. Chernobyl anniversary. Yeah. Yeah. Remember that Chernobyl. Exactly. Thank you, Rich. Um, if everyone hasn't seen that show, I recommend checking it out. It's pretty accurate. Um, I've spoken to many many, many, many supporters of, of nuclear power. Uh, you know, my friend, Tony Grayson, who, ha- you know, happily will tell anybody who that he slept next to a nuclear reactor for 
X amount of months and that, you know, realistically flying at an airplane, you get more radiation than sleeping next to one of those things. Um, and then also speaking with Brett from like last energy, uh, he doesn't even like to use the word safe because he's like, Bill, these are water-based technologies. There's no reason to even there. If you introduce that word, you immediately inherently introduce the thought of risk where these facilities are safe. And he brought up a really good point to me as I was talking to him. He said that, um, Bill, all of these incidents outside of Chernobyl with water-based systems, no one has ever died. No one has ever died from a nuclear leak or um, some kind of an event that happened, like Fukushima, Three Mile, all of them. There's there's no radiation poisoning that happened. Uh, obviously, Chernobyl is a different story. Um, and so that gets you to think about that these these solutions are, are certainly here to say um, we have these really wonderful designs that in many cases are very proven. Um, and Rich, just like you said, it's not it's not like immediately around the corner, right? I think there's still a lot of understanding of the business use case, the cost conversation. What does a power purchasing agreement look like? Because, oh my goodness, we're going from 20 to 30 years to like a lot more for an SMR to be in your location. But also these efforts can't be private. These need to be public and private uh, partnerships with government and local governments and cities and municipalities. Because an ideal scenario, everybody listening, is that you deploy an SMR that produces between two and 400 megawatts of power, and you have a data center facility that's consuming, let's say, 100 of it, and then the rest of it goes to a small city, a you know, a campus, a school, university, whatever the case might be. Um, and now we start to create things called downstream data centers that are kind of like a water tower or a hospital. They are a part of the community, not just a secret warehouse that's got big, you know, blinking lights and server racks. And <laughs> um, so it becomes much more a part of it. Uh, we still have a lot of learning to do in this industry, a lot of a little bit of fear, uncertainty, and doubt to overcome with things like nuclear power. Yep. I, I agree with you, though. I, th I think it's it's getting there. And it's it's close. Yeah, and then I think that uh, part of that, uh, just to uh, transition to the, the supply chain piece here, uh, one of the other reasons that people are looking at energy uh, options that they might not have before is because we're we're getting the energy grid being constrained in a number of markets simply because the internet is growing much faster than the power grid, and as a result, uh, the the number of data centers being built have kind of maxed out the available energy. It's not just Northern Virginia. Obviously, we've written a lot about the situation there uh, with Dominion Energy. Other markets like uh, certainly Silicon Valley. Chicago and Dallas, you're also seeing parts of uh, the, the geography that are uh, constrained from a transmission uh, uh, capacity uh, perspective. Uh, and once you get into building new projects that require new transmission, you're talking about very different timelines. And I think to your point before, uh, there was a, a lot of discussion of supply chain issues during the pandemic uh, and uh, during the worst of the pandemic anyway. And, and now I think what we're seeing is, is sort of a different phase where there's specific kinds of infrastructure that have gotten very behind, a lot of them in the somewhere in the power chain. And that's uh, becoming uh, an issue along with, you know, the fact that because you mentioned some of the community uh, responses to data center development, you know, the, when you have contentious processes with uh, local governments that... Uh, you know, creates a time element as well. So I think, you know, a lot of folks are looking at a slightly longer development uh, timeline 
and delivery timeline than uh, we used to in the past. These aren't the six month projects that we were doing two or three years ago. People are talking closer to two years in a lot of cases. Uh, your mileage may vary. But from the supply chain perspective, there is still a lot of chaos and that shows up in both cost and time. You know, you bring up a really good point. Uh, we are we are time constrained in a market that needs this stuff yesterday. Um, there was a really interesting data center hawk report that I just read about. Um, it was an update that talked about the total vacancy available in North American market, 3.6%. It's not much, yeah. That's down from 4.4% in the last report that they did. And in Nova specifically, you've got like 1% or less that's available to you. And and so, okay, you've got, you've got that challenge, right? And then you've got the other challenge of people simply needing more physical infrastructure to support the level of connectivity that we have. It's, it's, it's like the chicken, the chicken and the egg problem, right? You, it's like, it's like, if there's this major challenge where you're trying to bring up this new infrastructure, but all of these obstacles in the way, um, it's, it's a fascinating, fascinating challenge to, to see in this industry. What's been really interesting, Rich, is how various co-location um, companies are getting creative with time to market, how they're getting creative with construction um, you know, everything from like really extensive site analysis and surveys, environmental studies to having to having people that are sitting in city hall literally ready to draw permits like on a drop of a dime just so they can get this physical infrastructure up and running much, much faster. What I've seen is organizations spend much more money up front before the ink on the land deed even dries. I mean, it's it is not even signed yet. You'll see organizations doing things like advanced environmental studies. You, you'll see them doing, um, you know, community studies as well because NIMBY, right, Rich? Not in my backyard, NIMBY. It's a problem. It's a legitimate yep. problem, right? It, we have, And we've had complaints, everything from you guys are too loud. We're like, we're not loud. It's usual good operation of a facility has been 50 and 60 decibels. Do you know what that means? That's this, this conversation. Just not like nobody's yelling at you. Um, and also making sure that we talk about, you know, the the job growth potential, the multiplier job potential that data centers have. And also obviously, you know, the, from an education perspective, a partnering perspective, there's obviously a lot of benefits, but, you know, we're still doing a lot of learning. It's 2023, Rich Miller, and everybody listening, I just read an article recently, like a couple of weeks ago, where the article title was all like scare and doom, the cloud is running out of space, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I don't care about that. In in the actual article, do you know what they called us, Rich? Data warehouses. They called us data warehouses. And in parentheses, they put data centers. I'm like, you guys, seriously, it's 2023. You should at least know who we are. We're not a warehouse. We're not a warehouse. Oh, my gosh. Sorry, I'm venting. That's okay. Vent away. Uh, no, I mean, look, there's, there's some very real uh, concerns that I, I think a lot of folks have. Uh, I think a part of the problem is that uh, the narrative in many ways has gotten away from the data center industry. Um, and, I, and I've you know, been pretty open in, in some of my discussions about this, that I think that the yearning for secrecy and codename projects has sort of come back to become a problem. Because <laughs> when everything was, you know, you know closed rooms and, and secret processes, you know, the public it wasn't a real trust building uh, way to, to go about it. And so now uh, I did the, the good news is that data center operators are starting to step up and have uh, 
processes, where they interact with the public. I've, I've seen some of that in the past couple of weeks in Prince William County, where let's face it, people are very hotted up about data centers. It's a real uh, political football down there. But uh, uh, and some of the, you know, you're right about the average noise uh, issue, but uh, some in there, some of these places where because land is so hard to find that the data centers are being built very close to residential communities. When I first heard about this, I thought, nah, that can't be right. But when I saw some of the pictures showing the proximity of, of these, it's like, yeah, and that's that's the challenge in in trying to come up with rational a rational balance between the fact that everybody wants the internet, they want it now, they want it fast, and so you need data centers in all kinds of places but nobody wants them next to where they're living and uh, trying to, uh, I've long talked about the, the concept of data center districts and how we make rational planning decisions about where data centers should and shouldn't go. Um, and there's a lot of it just is willy nilly because everybody wants to move so fast, but you know, that's all in the mix, but to, to circle back to the point that you made on the, the data center Hawk report, we've seen in other reports as well, the vacancy right now is really low. And meanwhile, the timelines are getting longer uh, to the point where we've written a couple of times about the concern about whether later this year, it's, it's going to get increasingly hard for enterprise customers in particular, I think, to find adequate data center space for their needs. The reason being just the way the ecosystem works right now is a lot of the uh, decisions about how data centers are built and leased are driven by hyperscale tenants who represent the lion's share of the business. Uh, they like lots of capacity and they like to control their space and not have other tenants in it. So if you're a developer and you have the option of leasing an entire building to a hyperscale or, or saying, no, we only want to give you two thirds of it and, and save this other space for our enterprise uh, clients, Maybe some people are up for that, but some people may want to go to the data center down the street. It's a it's a dilemma, and I think it uh, creates challenges for having a lot of enterprise capacity. Now, on top of that, and this I think is our entry to the the next topic here, is with the the burst of attention and adoption uh, and development of generative AI, uh, suddenly we're seeing uh, demand for computer data crunching power and the resultant, uh, you know, uh, electricity that's going to be needed to support all of that. Um, if we, if this all does go with the straight vertical line on the chart, not just even a hockey stick, um, how do we meet that demand? Yeah. And I think it's a, you know, I, I talked to Dean Nelson, who you know well about this and, uh, he was theorizing that maybe in the next five years, we might need as much data center capacity as we've built in the last 20, simply because AI is going to require so much of this. Um, as someone who's been involved, you're on the front lines of, of uh, uh, looking at AI and what it can uh, do and what it looks like in the data center. Uh, what's your take on where we're at and where things are headed? I, I feel like I got lucky to be shoved on the front line of, of what's happening here. I'll give everybody listening a quick synopsis. Uh, I left Switch uh, January 1st, 23. Um, very successful exit and acquisition. Uh, and, and those folks are doing great. 
Uh, I was going to try and take like a little bit of time off, but clearly that failed miserably. So, um, Rich, to your point, I joined an organization as their board member, uh, an investor, uh, you know, is, is a resident technologist, um, a company called Neuro, N-E-U dot originally a Ukrainian company uh, where we've moved all of operations here to the United States now. And the company's been around for about five years, and they've been always, since the beginning, working at ML, uh, AI, uh, um, you know, data scientists, this early chat GPT uh, generative AI technology. Now, for the first month and a half, it was quiet, right? We're building up a business, getting all these people, folks, and everything. And then mainstream. Mainstream media just like, oh, my God, this is everything. This is, you know, the Internet's around the corner. The iPhone's about to come out. This is insane. This is going to rule, you know, rule our lives from now on. And and it's been fascinating because the amount of attention that we've seen. Listen, everybody, South Park did an episode on this. And if you haven't seen the episode called Deep Learning, mm-hmm, you will be blown away. Because at the end, it says written by Trey Parker and ChatGPT. You'll know. You'll know when ChatGPT is the one that's actually talking, let's say it that way. Um, and what an extraordinary episode it was. Um, since then, the kinds of conversations that we've been having are extraordinary. And the reason I say, the reason Rich Miller, I agree with you 100% is because we're going away from companies that are saying, oh, this is cool, blah, 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 to traditional companies, healthcare, manufacturing, uh, automotive, uh, saying, this is the future. Our people are asking for this. How do I apply this? And so for everyone listening, how do I apply generative AI, large language models to my industry? I'll give you a really fun example, a legal example that we've been talking about. Um, a law firm will come to us and they say, obviously, we can't put this in AWS and Azure because we need to keep our legal documents ourselves. Okay. Companies like ours, we're built on three really important pillars, sustainability, AI sustainability, AI ethics, and AI transparency, which means that if Rich Miller uses our platform, he owns the model, he can audit the model, and he will forever know exactly where that data is stored we will have nothing to do with it once we're done. That's not necessarily the case when you move it into the cloud. You don't know where it's replicated. You don't know if other training models are learning from the data that you're supplying up there. So just something to think about. So in the case of a legal use case, just so everyone understands the power of this, the legal company will come to us, intellectual property. They'll say, we want you to ingest all of our data, all of our internal privatized data and train models against it. Okay, but can you also ingest publicly available legal documents? Absolutely. And can you correlate and train our model against that? Absolutely, we can. All right. Next week, we have a case, an intellectual property case. Can ChatGPT, our own ChatGPT, write a fully annotated, completely documented legal briefing that we can submit to the judge? Yes. And not just that, the architecture, the large language model will understand who the judge is and how to write the legal briefing with the highest level of confidence and your best chances of actually winning the case. So now you have this fully done legal briefing as if a, a lawyer wrote it. You have to review it. Oh my God, don't just take that and submit it to a judge. Make sure you review these documents. But now all of a sudden, this law firm has is capable of saving a lot of time and using an artificial intelligence to create a legal briefing, not just around their case, but specifically given to the judge that they're going to be going up against to give them the highest probability of winning. Same thing could be applied to healthcare with personalized healthcare options. Same thing could be up, uh, applied to manufacturing to better understand when to produce what and how. And same thing could be applied to obviously a lot of other kinds of industries. Now, going back, this is an absolutely critical moment in our industry. 
co-location providers, traditional ones, they're saying this, hang on a second, our customers are asking for this technology. And what we want to do is start to prevent revenue bleed into the hyperscalers, who, by the way, are now developing a line to get access to those GPU and those resources for you to train those models. And the other reality is they're not always sustainable. So that's something that everyone needs to be aware of. So all of a sudden, we went from, oh, this is cool, to, oh my gosh, this is A, going to create a competitive advantage for us, and B, gives us the capability to interact with our data more meaningfully than ever before. DSIM is a great example, Rich Miller, of who we've been talking to quite a bit. Traditional DSIM has sensors and racks, PDUs, air conditioning units, generators, Modbus, everything that can generate data. So all of a sudden, you can ingest all of that information correlated with publicly available information, and you can start to do predictive analysis down to the hour of saying that drive's going to fail or that fan's going to experience issues or your air handling unit might run out of space in a month. Um, so the capabilities there are, are extraordinary. Please understand that they're extraordinary. But the way we deploy this stuff, the resources that it takes underneath, that's where we have to make some of these conversations real, reality and better understanding how we're going to be doing this, how we're going to be deploying, and most of all, how we're going to be supporting it. I think you've identified a couple of issues there that are important in thinking about how AI moves forward. In, in these early days of generative AI and chat GPT and all of this, one of the things that everybody's become aware of is that there are times when it just gives you the wrong answer. They would call it hallucinations, whatever, that there are accuracy issues. A lot of that's because it's, you know, the training process, a lot of people have compared it to effectively inhaling the internet. And then you get the, uh, uh, you get the good and the bad. You've got... Uh, uh, some very high level uh, information. And you also have like all of Reddit probably, I don't know. But the power, as you noted, was when you take um, a training program that's built atop known intellectual property, where you know the the quality of it that, it, you know, how, and can define what you what you know about it and use it in that context. I think this is a big issue for media. Publications that have, uh, tens or, or dozens or hundreds of years of intellectual property done by trained reporters, you know, that you, you can approach that with a different, a little bit, a different level of confidence and build different sort of resources and tools on top of that. The law example that you cited is pretty far out, but, um, <clears throat> you know, this is one of these things where the potential applications are being developed so quickly. And there's so many things coming up in parallel across all these different industries. That one of the big questions is how do we keep our arms around it just in terms of thinking about the societal impact, thinking about impacts on things like copyright. And uh, uh, there's some really fascinating, uh, you know, uh, issues in the music business right now where people are wrestling with how you deal with sort of deep fakes and uh, and voice clones and those kind of things. What about the article that was just written in Germany with Michael Schumacher, right? Oh, boy. They fired the editor who yeah. did this, uh, which was just absolutely ridiculous. Don't, don't, I can't believe they even published this. Probably didn't yeah. know. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge Formula One fan. And so uh, over the years, you know, anyone who follows Formula One is, is aware of the, the the difficulty that the Schumacher family is going through with whatever the extent of Michael's injuries are and and how he is doing today. But 
you know, to, to just use AI to make up things that are obviously insensitive and hurtful and just say, well, it's, it's AI, we can use it and do it. So yeah, I, I'm not feeling badly that uh, the editor who thought of that uh, dumb idea got fired. And, uh, and, and so the ways that, uh, how we how we figure out what the appropriate uses are and and whatnot is a big issue. Uh, I think in in our country and in many others, uh, when it comes to advanced technology that's got a lot of these kind of wrinkles, uh, it's hard to regulate because it's you know it's hard for our public officials to be able to keep pace with the technology and understand the sort of tapestry of issues that you get that are really uh, all over the place with this. I want, to, I want to stop you there for a second. You brought up a really good point that I really want everyone listening to take take and understand. Two weeks ago, I was in Cincinnati uh, doing a uh, – I was the keynote speaker for a security briefing. And obviously, a big topic was weaponized AI. Hmm. And in the conversation, I talked about a company uh, called Cyberhaven who uh, monitors about 1.6 million users. And one of the things that they monitor for is uh, – Private information and, you know, obviously confidential information being inserted into ChatGPT. And so obviously they flag it and they stop it. I'm just going to give you a couple of examples. One example, uh, a senior executive of a very large enterprise put in the entire 2023 strategy document into ChatGPT and uh. asked it to create a PowerPoint uh, of it. That's not even the worst one. Another one is this. Uh, a doctor... Uh, went ahead and put in their patient's medical condition, medical information, um, and a few other very much PHI-related pieces of data and asked ChatGPT to write him a letter to insurance. Now, obviously a great use case, but the reality, this doctor had no idea that he was uploading this information to the public cloud. He had no idea that other pieces, other trading models could see that information and train other models around it. So, Rich, you bring up a really good point around privacy. It's a reason why Italy's banning it, why people like you know China and other locations are saying, hang on a second, this is really dangerous. What they're saying is not that generative AI and chat GPT and large language models are dangerous. It's the application of public cloud and the uncontrolled distribution of this data that's dangerous. So if you create that exact same model in a private infrastructure, there's no danger to it. It's like having your own data lake, data warehouse against which you train large language models. You own the data, you own the models, they're fully auditable, and no one else has access to them. That's the architecture of doing it properly, as opposed to having a doctor just being able to say, write me a letter to my insurance company because it's easier that way. I get it, but you just pretty much violated a lot of really important stuff. Yeah, I don't think it's an accident that OpenAI yesterday just announced that uh, you, you can now... you can hide it. You can hide it from other language models learning from it. You saw that, Rich Miller. Yeah, and then you can delete your chat history and, and all of that. Um, but there's there's a lot going on there. I, I want to uh, circle back a little bit to when you talked about uh, using AI in terms of data centers and with DCIM and all of that. Uh, I think there's... Um, there's a lot of interest in how uh, how AI and different uh, uh, uses for it can uh, help the data center industry deal with what looks to be a growing shortage of uh, qualified staff to be able to run data centers and, and scale up uh, cloud computing. It's something that you've been talking about, particularly in terms of trying to make uh, this industry more accessible to young people. Um, 
what's your what's your take on uh, on where things are at in terms of of hiring and the, the the staffing challenge, and whether automation, including AI, can uh, uh, can continue to make a difference here. So um, with the rise of distributed infrastructure, I'm going to take this from two angles. First of all, I think and I do feel that things like ChatGPT and large language models and AI can certainly help larger co-location providers, especially ones that have multiple facilities and a lot of data that they've ingested already. You can start to augment. I don't want to use the word replace, Rich, and everybody listening, augment uh, level one, level two data center operations capabilities by allowing a junior data center person to interact with literally their data center with live data coming in and a model being constantly trained, asking questions like, what's the power capacity over the next week? You know, what you can start to see real trends and predictability models so that you could use potentially less human power to forecast and better build these environments. So that that's all still true and valid. And I think that's going to be a great architecture. Now, what's really interesting is that coming up at AFCOM data center world, our keynote speaker, uh, actually Birchin, he's going to be talking about robotics and AI um, and these kind of really cool automation systems in the data center. And in fact, there's a video out there, Rich Miller, we have to find it and see if we can put it on the link, where I went to a mock Oracle data center and I had Spot running around the facility with a really cool LiDAR thing on his head. Yep. And amazing. I could actually see the AI and the code being written as this little robot navigated and traversed the, uh, the facility. Really sort of interesting stuff there. Um, there's no sugarcoating it. We are still having personnel problems and challenges in this industry. Um, there's definitely a lot of good news that, you know, we are starting to see real life programs from multiple schools, universities, uh, being opened up specifically titled things like digital engineering, digital infrastructure, engineering, data center engineering programs, um, the stuff that we're doing with infrastructure masons, uh, mm -hmm. and now the, also the nomad futurist foundation, um, but specifically, you know, what we're trying to do is start it at this grassroots foundation. At the latest Af um, at the latest uh, um, in infrastructure masons meeting, we are partnering with an organization called Jason J A S O N, and what they do are immersive programs for high school level students. So you know how like somebody wants to be a scientist or a farmer or a manufacturing person, you get that group immersed with the people that are actually doing this. Well, somebody says, I want to build digital infrastructure. We are starting to get groups, not just one or two, but groups of high school students um, immersed with data center engineering professionals spend uh, a week with a data center operator and then kind of rotate uh, between jobs and functions within critical infrastructure. That is an amazing way to start really much more at that foundational level because we've had a lot of success with um, – with college level students, so like engineering, uh, mechanical engineering, uh, civil, um, computer engineering, uh, all, all of these different kinds of program sets that have have all these capabilities to live in our space and in our industry, they just had no idea they could do it. Um, we've had a lot of success with that with Hampton University, Texas, uh, Texas uh, A&M, Prairie View, um, Hampton University, and, and these are such brilliant individuals and brilliant students. But there's one thing that I wanna mention, during my last semester, there were two students that I would have liked to have hired, okay? And I started to approach them and ask them, hey, would you be interested? Great salary, great benefits. And the response to me was this, Bill, we love you. We love this capstone program that we've been doing. We've learned so much. But Sandia National Labs already approached me. I'm like, okay, next student. Oh, Bill, this is amazing. I'd love to do this. I already got hired by Blue Origin, the Jeff Bezos rocket company. I'm like, 
I'm like, oh my God. And I realized I'm not competing with other data center companies. No, 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 Rich Miller and everybody listening. I'm competing with everybody out there that's offering yep. these students amazing opportunities. That's a real challenge. So even with these capstone programs, even though myself as the education chair for the iMasons, uh, uh, infrastructure Masons group, um, a year long program with these students and they still get hired away by these really fascinating other organizations. Now I get it. They're really interesting. We're fighting an uphill battle. I've written several articles of how, about how we've been a well-kept secret and now it is shooting us in the foot. Um, I'm still one of the younger people in these boardrooms and thank goodness now there's like Gen Zers and other young people that I'm like, yay, it's your turn to rule the world. You can't blame everything on me anymore. Um, but that is the good news. And I love seeing younger people in my meetings and my boardrooms and, you know, in all of these environments, but it's, 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 it's such a challenging equation, Rich Miller, massive amounts of demand, just silly, really low amounts of vacancy and not nearly enough human beings to fill all those requirements. I mean, I don't know, maybe it's an interesting problem to have, but it's certainly fun to try and overcome it. It's a quality problem. And, uh, if they if they can resist your charms, Bill, I think the opportunities out there must be uh, uh, pretty compelling. So I I want to wrap up with sort of one last question that I think ties together a lot of things that we're uh, we've been talking about. We we have cloud bill, AI bill. You've been colo bill. So the I think the question going forward is with all the stuff that we've talked about. What does the the relationship and the sort of balance of infrastructure look like for the cloud and the colo and third-party facilities and on-premises? It seems like as we have more AI and higher densities, that's a thing that's harder to manage in an on-prem facility uh, and to the extent that AI becomes a, a bigger part of a lot of these uh, uh, a lot of these people's businesses where they want to sprinkle the AI magic on everything. And at the same time, you know, there's there's those proprietary data sets that you talked about that people want to control and would prefer to have on-premises. What do, what do you see happening uh, going forward in terms of uh, how the balance shifts between the, these three different locations of computing? I think hybrid and multi-cloud are going to be sort of the de facto norm for a lot of the things that we're going to be trying to do. Um, let's take a let's take an organization uh, that I've worked with uh, as a real life use case. Um, they know that they want to do generative AI, generative AI, but they also know that the capabilities of traditional data centers and co-locations isn't there yet. They have compute power, but not GPU. Certainly not everybody. So they have to go to the cloud. But they also understand that going to the cloud is extremely expensive. And I'll give you an idea. A company that wants to train a model, right? If they go into the cloud, usually AWS is going to put you on the most expensive gear because that's how they make all their money. But if you do it privately, that same model, I mean, this is something that we work on, is intelligent enough to say, hang on a second. There's no reason you should be doing this on GPUs. Transfer to traditional CPU, and it'll be it'll be much more effective and much better. Um, it's going to be a balance. And asking asking me who's going to win the race literally as the race just started is a very difficult question to answer. Um, the good news is that executives and leaders across multiple industries understand that generative AI and ChatGPT is a part of our world, is a part of an industry now. It is a competitive differentiator and it is something that can get you ahead. They also understand that working solely with cloud computing maybe doesn't make sense. First of all, because there are enough resources, it's too expensive, 
um, or for data, uh, you know, gravity and data security perspectives as well. I am excited because there will be a balance and there will be co-location providers out there that are going to take on some of that CapEx to right. buy infrastructure, those A100s, those uh, NVIDIA grid cards to support AI and generative AI, certainly. Um, but I'm excited that the industry is maturing to a point where they have to ask this, this question just because it can go in the cloud, should it? Uh, you know, I just because I, I I deployed to the cloud initially, does that mean I should stay in it? Right. And there's the obvious saying, like, you're, you're crazy if you don't go in the cloud and you're crazy if you stay on it. Um, and there's a lot of maturity in that sense, right, where leaders are starting to look at the ROI, the true cost of cloud, um, you know, where it weighs you down, where there are potential impacts. I feel strongly that the future and it's literally going to be within now till the end of the year. A lot of co-locations and even a lot of enterprise data centers are going to be investing in systems, sometimes CapEx, to support generative AI and other kinds of solutions. Now, here's the really crazy part. You can use one, two, three gen old GPUs and still train to chat GPT-4 levels and certainly beyond. Now, it might take you an extra couple of days, but what we've learned is that there isn't like a rush on this stuff. Once you get the right. data, and you know what the model needs to look like, you'd rather take your time and make it be accurate. So a couple of extra days doesn't do you any harm. So there's going to be maturity. There's going to be a lot more understanding. And my goodness, there's going to be a lot more conversations like this, which personally kind of excited about. Well, I think that's a good uh, place to end on, uh, Bill. I, as always, I appreciate your insights. Uh, I know many of our uh, listeners are probably going to be uh, floating around data center world. Be sure to uh, check out uh, Bill's uh, sessions because as much as he has shared here in this uh, in this hour of discussion, he's got lots more uh, coming uh, from that. So, uh, I, I uh, shameless plug. First of all, everybody, I know this video. Check it out. Check it out. I got some swag. Hey, the data center frontier t-shirt. Represent. All Represent. Right. Other thing I want everyone to keep an eye on is please be sure to check out the white paper section of data center frontier. I've been having a chance to write some really, really fun ones. Everything from DDoS to floating data centers. Be sure to check those out. A lot of really fun reports there. Great stuff. And then uh, Bill likes the... Uh... Uh, the science fiction kind of stuff as much as I do. We uh, There's so much innovation going on and so much happening. Uh, Bill, as always, thank you for your time and for being on the Data Center Frontier Show, where we tell the story of the data center industry, one podcast at a time. My pleasure. Thank you, Rich. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for listening to the Data Center Frontier Show. You can find the show notes for this episode at datacenterfrontier.com slash podcast, including links to the resources Rich has mentioned. Be sure to subscribe to the Data Center Frontier Show at Apple, iTunes, Spotify, or where you find your podcasts. If you enjoyed this show, please tell your friends or share about it on your social channels. You can always find us on the web at datacenterfrontier.com and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Until next time.